Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. I just want to personally thank you for taking the time to be a part of our church's gathering, even if only via this podcast. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church, and my hope as we open Scripture is that today your understanding and experience of Jesus' gracious love would grow. God bless you. So John's Gospel, Chapter 3, and then for extra credit, you can turn to Galatians 3 as well. And I realize we've already had a fun-filled full morning, so this is not uh, a normal uh, length uh, message for me. I want to be aware of, we've got lots of moving parts this morning and fun things to celebrate, but I'm very excited uh, to open scripture with you this morning and for us to, to slow down and think of Jesus. So Father, as we slow down and look your direction, Jesus, reveal yourself to us. These might be simple things, these might just be reminders Or this might be the first, the first time that these things really take root and land in soft soil. Jesus, we're praying, regardless of those details, that Jesus, you'd spring up more life, new life in each of us. Jesus, we look your direction. In Jesus' name, amen. John's Gospel, chapter 3. Jesus begins to have this dialogue with someone. And in the middle of that dialogue... He makes the statement, John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I don't know about you, but for me this week, as as the week played out, I found myself uh, feeling like I was stepping into the season of Advent in a much deeper and more profound way than even the last three weeks as we've been kind of journeying through our Advent season. And and what I mean by that is is that Advent is, is for us to slow down in busy, chaotic humanity's existence, to intentionally slow down to recognize the brokenness that exists in our world and the tension that exists in each of our hearts, the tension of trusting and waiting on a good God to make the world right again in the midst of brokenness and chaos around us. And so for me, I felt more like I was stepping into the Advent season this week than the previous couple of weeks just because of even new mandates and a new wave of COVID and new headlines taking over things uh, across the nation Uh, even in our local community, where we're now, as a church, having to shift gears yet again. And and it's, it's left me with that tension of waiting on the good God to make what's wrong right again. It's it's intentionally meant to take us back into the shoes of ancient Israel, to slow down into this rhythm and season of Advent, to try their shoes on, where they intention waited for a Messiah, a deliverer. It's the tension that we, the people of God, the followers of Jesus today feel, where we look for the one who promised to, rec- to return and to redeem and restore, to restore the world back into its prior glory. That's what we're waiting for. We feel that tension even with masked faces today. We feel the unrest, the tension of waiting with expectation. That's what Ab- Advent is all about. Remember, it simply means, the word Advent, it means coming or arrival. It's a it's a Latin word, Adventist, that we steal from and, and get our English word. It's, it's the traditional celebration of the first coming, the first advent of Jesus, where he came in humility as a suffering servant. But it's also simultaneously, it's meant to conjure up in our hearts the eager expectation 
the anticipation of Jesus' second coming, his second advent, where he comes in glory and power. We don't merely, in this season, we're not merely to look back and celebrate the birth of Christ. We're meant to celebrate what we're waiting for, what the birth of Christ made possible for us, that the world could be right again, that we could be made whole again, where hope and peace and joy and love could really be experienced again. That's what Advent is all about. Remember that this goes back all the way to the fourth century, where you have a Roman empire that's made Christianity uh, really the, the dominating religion in the world. And one of the, the decisions that the government or that, uh, the emperor during that time made was he then shifted a celebration of Jesus' arrival to overlay some of the pagan holidays that existed in the month of December so that they would be underneath the shadow of the massive celebration of the one thing worth celebrating that's really changed the world, that God came down and dwelt among us, Emmanuel, that he arrived. By the fifth century, it's just four years, as early, historians tell us as early as four years after that mandate of, of Christians following uh, following uh, this calendar of, of celebrating Christmas in December, and then the Roman Empire shortly thereafter, it crumbling. About four years after the crumbling of the Roman Empire, you have records that historians uh, log for us of the church, the people of God, continuing to celebrate this tension in waiting, a four-week season of Advent. In fact, it's the monks that historians tell us really hang on so tightly to it, where they would celebrate for four weeks leading up to Christmas every year with a four-week period of fasting. Now, before you feel really like you should deeply admire these people, the monks, the ancient monks also brewed beer. And this is, I have a friend who's a brewer here in San Diego, and he says this is where uh, Belgian triples and quadruples came from, was that era. And if you've ever had a Belgian quad, it feels like you've just eaten a loaf of bread. And if you had more than one on an empty stomach where you hadn't eaten in a week, it'd not only fill your belly, but you probably couldn't feel your face afterwards either, much less your hunger or emotions. I'm telling you all of that because our modern celebration of Christmas, where it's just the gift and the excitement, which is great, is only about 150 years old. But you can reach over 1,500 years back into the history of the church and find the church waiting, intentionally entering the tension that we've tried to enter together as a church. A tension of longing for not just remembering a Christmas day in the past, but longing for a future day when Jesus the King returns, not just a humble child, but a triumphant King who comes to make the world right again. This is why we've paused, along with millions of other believers in Jesus around the world today, along with billions of other believers throughout the ages who have done this. And we've done it because the goal for us is to celebrate and anticipate what Jesus gives us. And so we've done that by looking at the four themes of Advent. Today we wrap it up. We've talked about hope and peace and joy last week. Thank you, Dave Van Hook, for leading that discussion. And then today we just simply wrap up with love. And like I said, this will be just a simple, straightforward message. What we've done each of these weeks, and we'll do it today with love, is we'll observe around us a world that's really void of love, the kind of love that God created us to need and enjoy. But then we also, we look back to what Christmas gave us an expression, an experience of love. But then we look forward in anticipation of what Jesus in the future will give us in his second coming of a forever experience of being recipients of his beautiful agape love. But first, we enter the tension, and that means that we have to observe the world that's void of love. 
And that's true before Jesus' first coming, that the world was longing for this. And it's true as we wait for Jesus' second coming to judge the world and make it right again. Quoting from my four-year-old daughter, uh, who was in the front over here this last week or two weeks ago when I was sending her to bed in the evening because they have this habit of getting up a lot. If you have kids, you know how this works, where it's every excuse is pulled out. But she kept walking out to the kitchen to give my wife and I excuses. And I sent her back and said, Declan, not again, like go back to your bed. Four years old. As she's walking down the hall, she flips her hair, looks over her shoulder and says, goodbye, cruel world. (laughs) Pray for us. (laughs) The courtesy laugh from an infant in the back. Uh, For many of us, including my four-year-old daughter, we would not describe our world as a warm and loving place. We describe it as difficult and oftentimes cold and maybe even a heartless place. Life is hard. And sometimes people can be harsh. Our experience can feel like we're walking down a dark hall just saying, goodbye, I'm done with this cruel world. I'm I'm assuming that many of us, we'd agree that for as long as human existence has been in reality, like that, that it's existed here present in this earth, that humanity's search for love has always been really humanity's top priority. We're looking for love and harmony. We're looking for belonging. We're looking for peace. In fact, if you look just at every ancient civilization that we have record of, all of them write about love. All of them write about the pursuit of love. All of them produce for us fairy tales. Many of them, many, many ancient civilizations, even adopt some sort of a union and expression of love between two people. Many of them even have standards and laws throughout antiquity of when that union is broken, when there's betrayal, how we respond to that. There's so much written about love all throughout the ages where this is a common bond, not just throughout all the world today with the heart and desire for love, but throughout every age. The desire for love and the heartbeat that you hear coming through history's annals is amazing. In fact, there's those who are referred to as the ancient Neolithic people. Uh, There's these ancient skeletons that have been found that archaeologists refer to as some of the oldest of human beings. And it wasn't that long ago that in Italy they found um, uh, two bodies, two skeletons lying together. It was a man embracing a woman is what they could tell from the examination they did. And then there's romantic writings about, about the love that came from even that era. You skip forward, not even very much, but you have ancient Sumerian texts, some of the oldest documents that have ever been discovered and deciphered in human history. And what they write about is love. They, they write about love and the union of marriage. And those, uh, those writings include the oldest love poem known to man. I read it this week. It's a little racy, so I'm going to spare you from it. Uh, But it talks about being so captivated by someone that you find yourself just trembling every time you're in their presence. You skip forward, it's not even very far, but you find medical texts from Mesopotamia that give uh, give, uh, descriptions of different medical illnesses and treatment plans for these illnesses. But there's one known illness, a terrible condition that they write about, of which they say they had no remedy for. It existed, this terrible illness did, without a cure, and they referred to it in their writings as passionate love. It was the one illness without a cure. I'll quote to you from their medical texts that were found in ancient ruins of Nineveh. They said, when the patient is continually clearing their throat, when they're often at loss for words, 
when they're always thinking about himself when he's alone and laughing for no reason in the corner of fields, in habitual depression even, his throat is tight, he finds no pleasure in eating or drinking, endlessly repeating with great sighs, Ah, my poor heart, he's suffering from love sickness. For a man and for a woman, it is all the same, and it's all without a cure. Love sickness, all throughout history. Skip ahead to the Greeks then. And the Greeks are the ones that we probably know most of because the, the majority of their writings we, we still seem to have access to. But the Greeks wrote so much about love. You, you probably know that in the Greek language, there's four dominating words that were used to describe love where they, they took the idea of love and, and, and took po brought, brought poetry to it. They, they took it and opened up to explain that love is such a powerful thing that just to have a singular word wouldn't make sense. In fact, some would say, because there's three additional words for affection that describe a form of love, that maybe there's even seven Greek words for it. But the four dominating ones you probably are aware of. In the Greek language, there's storge. It's speaking of the love of a family. There's phileo. It's, it's the brotherly love, the city of Philadelphia. It's, it's an affectionate love that's platonic. And then there's eros. It's an erotic love. It's, it's a sexual love and attraction. And then there's this other one, agape. Agape love. It's a self-emptying, unconditional, often described as a divine love. And then if you look in Greek mythology, the greatest love that's staged for you in Greek mythology, the highest form of love, is not eroticism. It's not even a familial bond. No, the greatest form of love is this self-emptying, self-sacrificial love, agape. In fact, get nerdy with me for a minute. In, in Greek mythology, there's actually a character known as agape. Remember, the, the, the Greeks, they would tell these legends and stories where they would take these idolized humans and, and, and cast them as gods, or they would, they would take ex human experiences that, that everyone was longing for and just got little tastes of, and they would embody those experiences in an entity to tell the tale of the human experience that longs for these things, that those things that we long for are now embodied in an individual. And one of those things we long for is agape. And I'll be fair, in Greek mythology, as you read it, you start to realize that some of these stories are conflicting. The reason they're conflicting is because they're written over generations with many different people contributing to these myths and legends. And so some of the narratives begin to conflict. And, and this is one of those individuals that there's two different origin stories for. I'll give you both of them really quickly. The first origin story for Agape is that Agape was this, this woman who came to realize that she did not need to fight for the love of a man. In order for her to find her own identity and her sense of self, it was not contingent upon her having a man in her life to love her. That's what she realized in Greek mythology. She was agape, without the need of an outside source of love to empower her to be who she was. Are you tracking? In fact, the more independent agape became in Greek mythology, the more powerful she became and the more beautiful she became. Early in her story, when she was yet to find out and to realize that I don't need my identity, agape does not need an outside source of love to give love for me to be who I am. When she re before she had realized that, it, it describes her as just being a simple woman without attractiveness uh, connected to her. And then by the end of her story, she's become so attractive, so beautiful because she's realized this is who I am, and it's not requiring that someone love me for me to live in my identity, for me to give agape love to dispense it. Think about this. 
Agape love is this unconditional love. It doesn't need something or someone outside of itself to stimulate or initiate that kind of love. It's a powerful love that's most beautiful when it's given without needing to receive. When it's isolated and not contingent upon any other person or condition to exist, when it just is given and expressed. In mythology, Agape had an older sister. Her name was Aphrodite. And if you know much about Greek mythology, she is the deification of lust. She, she embodies eroticism. And in Greek mythology, the Greek gods turned away from Aphrodite and turned to pursue Agape because they realized over time that her love was more powerful. Think about That's the backdrop that then God says, and God so loved the world that he gave Agape to this world where even amongst legend, even amongst stories in that culture, the people had come to realize that we can chase eroticism as long as we want, but it doesn't give us what we want. We've come to realize that what we need is a love that can love without getting, a love that is given without requirement, a love that is given and expressed freely. It's the love that we talk about often, the love that says you're fully known and yet somehow still fully loved. That's what agape is. It's interesting, the other origin story, it's really simple, is that agape actually wasn't a god. Agape was just this ordinary being. But the love of agape, when experienced by others, even the chief god of heaven himself, when he experienced it, he came to recognize that the one who came in humility, agape, was so much more than anyone had initially thought. And at the end of that myth and mythology, the gods have recognized, no, you have been this powerful entity, a powerful force, a god among us the whole time, but we failed to recognize it because of your humility. We overlooked the beauty, the power of agape, but now we've come to see it. Christ leaving heaven, taking on flesh, the agape of God, tabernacling among us, taking on flesh to be here. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. Something the world overlooks, but heaven itself is shouting about, saying, you're missing it, you're missing it, you're missing it. The greatest gift you've been given, ever given, is the gift of his agape love. That is the context, the cultural context, that the gospel writers begin to write about, behold what manner of love, agape, the Father has given unto us. This is the expression of the love of God. We live in a world void of love. If we borrow just the, the wise words of the young four-year-old sage that lives in my home, it's a cruel world. And as humanity is determined to chase what it cannot find, as the allurement of lust in place of true love as it begins to lose its luster in so many hearts, that real, satisfying, unconditional love then can be found, and it's found in the person of Jesus. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That humanity's search for love, it's true, it's always been a search really to be loved more than it was looking for an object to love. We're looking for a safe space to be loved and then to reciprocate to that love. And what scripture tells me is that I am able to love because I've first been loved by him. Because I first received and experienced the powerful gift of agape coming down. That all other loves, all other passions, all other allurements pale in comparison and are pushed aside because of what I've found in the expression of heaven of agape. 
We observe a world that's void of love, but we remember. We remember. Remember, that's the second thing we've done each week in the series. We remember what Jesus' arrival did for us. Jesus' arrival was the expression of God's agape love for this world. The gift of Jesus, Christmas, the first advent, was God's expression of love for the world. Look at what it says about Jesus, the gift of agape to this world. For God so loved, he agaped the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Remember the imagery that that the more independent agape was, the more captivating and beautiful she became. This is the imagery of Christmas. A love so captivating, so beautiful, because it's not stimulated. That love was not animated. That love was not initiated or contingent even upon humans doing anything. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. It was the fall happening and God standing in the garden and making a promise that you won't reach back to heaven, but I will come down from heaven to reach and to rescue you. Humanity, who is deserving of judgment, that's what all of us have earned. Instead, what humanity received was a selfless, self-emptying, unconditional love that we find in Jesus alone. This is what's meant to captivate us about Christmas. This is what's meant to turn our heads every year, every time we slow down and remember the gift of Christmas. Because think about it, as, as children of God, our motivation, it's not ritual. Our motivation is not expectation. Our motivation is not pressure. It's not shame or fear. It's love. Our motivation, our driving force, the thing that compels us is this love that's not rooted or sourced in us. It's a love that that, that was found in the God who is love, that was freely expressed to us, received by us, that now compels us to respond to his love with love and to respond to his love with loving others around us. The the essence of other religions, every other religion is is essentially advice. This is where the gospel is so very different. It's not advice. The essence of it is news. It's news for us to believe, not requirement for us to do, to reach and please God. No, it's news for us to believe of what God has done for us. Our job is not to to find the lists and the rules and go out and live under the pressure and the fear of what will happen if we don't do that. No, our job is to believe and receive and walk in the love and the joy and the pleasure of God forevermore. I mean, think of what Jesus said when he was asked, would you sum up the total, the whole of the law? Remember that this is what the scribe came asking Jesus to do. And he's really, when he says, Can you tell us what what is all of the law and the prophets? Can you sum it up? That's what he's asking. Can you sum up all of the Torah? He's asking Jesus to tell us what's the point of it all. What's the point of the whole book of God's revelation to humanity? What are we meant to understand? The scribe here is asking the question. So what's Jesus' answer to the question? Remember, Jesus summed it all up and said, The desire of God was that you would love him and that you would love those around you. What would we say in a 21st century culture? What would we say God is after? What would you say is the meaning of life? What would you say is the message and the point of the gospel? What is the essence 
Think of this. What is the essence of Christianity? The essence of Christianity is, some would say moralism. The essence of Christianity is, it's fear. It's a delusion. It's pressure. It's exploitation. But according to Jesus, the essence of Christianity is love. Agape. That's, that's the whole thing. The essence of it is love. That we would receive and experience the life-transforming love of God. The agape that turns our eyes away from every other passion and pursuit and thing we thought that would fulfill us where those are found empty and what we find is we're drawn now to this other thing that was easily overlooked before but now shines in its beauty. We look towards Jesus, the gift of God's love for us. That's the core of the Christian message. It's the immovable, irreplaceable revelation and depiction of love. That's the core of it all. Love is the essence of the Christian message. God lovingly creating this absolutely perfect place. And then God lovingly fashioning mankind in his own image to enjoy the beauty of that place. And even though mankind then rebels against God, badly damaging themselves and forever corrupting uh, all of creation with it, God then promises, he steps in promising himself to come as a deliverer. He then lovingly chooses an, an imperfect man, Abraham, to be a father of a nation. And then God lovingly gives that man descendants, even though his wife had previously been barren. God then lovingly and powerfully delivers his people from bondage and captivity in Egypt. He lovingly and patiently works with those people, leading them through the wilderness. We follow the story, and he lovingly gives them a land of their own, who, who now he can lovingly manifest his presence and glory in their tabernacle and later in their temple. And then God lovingly sends messengers to those rebellious people until finally God lovingly, when he could give nothing greater, when he could send no one better, he himself came. And he lovingly embraced a cross. And none of that was stimulated by the beauty that we create. None of that was stimulated, that kind of love, was initiated by the goodness that exists in us. None of that was the byproduct of how hard we've worked to earn that kind of love. His agape is disconnected from what I try to do or think and try to convince myself I must do to earn and stir up that kind of love in his heart for me. His agape is just lavishly given. In Scripture it says, Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We live in a world that's void of love. We know that. But we remember Jesus' arrival's expression of God's love for that broken world. The gift of Jesus, Christmas, that first advent, was God's expression of love for our world. And what was a shock about it was not just that he came, but that when he came, Jesus in the end would be treated by God as an enemy so that you and I could be received as sons. Yeah, we have a world that's void of hope, but we look towards Jesus, the expression of Jesus' love, of, of God's love for this world. The cross of Jesus then becomes, once and for all, the proof of that love. 
If the birth of Jesus is the expression of God's love for the world, the cross provides the once and for all proof of that love. A proof that's strong enough that it leaves us looking towards the future with anticipation, knowing that he has already proven his great agape for me. And that while I was a while I was still a sinner, he demonstrated that love by going to a cross and dying for me, Romans 5.8 tells me. You see, the cross, in a sense, became the pulpit from which God would boldly and clearly preach his love for this world. The rugged cross turned sideways as if it was a lectern so that God could make clear to the world how he felt about them. You see, the purpose of this season, yes, it's to turn our minds to what happened in Jesus' first coming, but it's simultaneously meant to awaken our hearts to the hope of what, what will come with Jesus at his second coming, of what we will share with Jesus in his second coming, that, that we are meant to, in this season, turn our heads and our hearts towards the one who promises, he proclaims, behold, I make all things new again. The one who will take us back to Eden where wrongs are made right, where sorrow is no more, where tears will be wiped away, where where pandemics are no more, where everything sad becomes untrue. In Jesus, we have what we've always needed and always hoped for, what we've always longed for. In Jesus, we can be fully known and yet fully loved. This is what we're searching for. For us, that's what our search has always been. It's been a drive to be loved. And we find its source, we find its answer in Christmas, in Jesus, the expression of God's love for us. Think back real quick to where we began in John's gospel. Because Jesus doesn't just express here, or scripture doesn't just express that Jesus is the expression of heaven's love for the world. It then does describe how Jesus will really demonstrate and prove that kind of love. Because it it makes the comment that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I mean, do you remember this story that it's referencing here from the Old Testament? You find it in the book of Numbers. It's towards the end of it in Numbers chapter 21. It's where the encampment of the nation of Israel, as they're making their way through the wilderness, where they find themselves plagued with serpents, poisonous serpents. And the people are being struck by these serpents, and it's a sentence of death. As soon as the serpent has latched on, they know the poison's been injected, and there is no way to undo it. The the poison's there, and the sentence of death has begun to count down. And Moses begins to cry out to God for mercy, and to cry out to God for an answer. And you remember in the story that God responds and instructs him, I want you to make a bronze serpent, fashion it, and then I want you to wrap it around a pole. Wrap it around a branch, and then I want you to hold it up high and lift it for all to see, and every person who will by faith turn and look towards the serpent that is there, placed on, lifted high on the branch for all to see, those who turn and and look in faith, they will be healed. Instantly, a miracle would happen. It's a crazy story. The the craziest part is that you, if you know the story, it worked. As Moses did this in obedience to God, all those who had been injected with with this poison and a sentence of death on them, if they'd look in faith to another serpent, they would be healed, they'd be restored, they'd be cured, they'd be rescued. The mercy of God was extended from heaven itself as the people of God were healed in that day. 
It's this wild and confusing, even somewhat unexplained story. I mean, why, think about this, why would looking at a serpent remove the sting, the sentence of death from a serpent's strike? If scripture has taught us anything, by the time you get to numbers, you know that serpents are not usually imagery or allegory of something that's positive. In fact, if you think of the garden itself, your mind probably already went there. You, you think of this as the embodiment of evil. Evil itself, Satan himself, taking the form of a serpent in the story of the garden. And now we're looking towards a serpent for healing, for restoration, for salvation. The, the serpent is the one who's, who's responsible for all of the world's brokenness. Why look that direction? You see, the image of the serpent held up for all to see on the branch, it's still, it's still present. This image, this imagery is still present in our modern world. You see it on the back of every ambulance you drive by. Have you ever noticed that? A branch with the bronze serpent around it. It's not just still present, but it's still confusing. How is, how is healing linked to looking in faith towards what feels like evil? To what feels like a cursed one? Because that's what God did to Satan in the garden, is he cursed him and said, forever you'll dwell and, and on your belly you'll go. Why would blessing be, why would, why would salvation be connected to looking on the one that's cursed? But now in the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, Jesus himself is placed on that staff that was lifted up high for everyone to see. He's placed in the center of that story. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it says it this way, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Now, now don't choke on that last little bit. When it says hangs upon a tree, it's not speaking of a hangman's noose. It's speaking of someone whose body is draped on a tree in crucifixion. It's the same way that historians talk about this. They use the same terminology in talking about crucifixion. So don't choke on that part, but think of what it says. Another translation. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law when he was hung on the cross. He took upon himself the curse of our wrongdoing, for it is written in scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung upon a tree. Christ took our sin. He would embody the curse that our rebellion and my sin has brought so that we could look upon him in faith and have the sting of death and the penalty of our sin, the curse of our rebellion, have it be removed. That Jesus is placed into that imagery that it was always looking forward to the one who would come from heaven and who would take upon himself the curse of all of humanity. It's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane feeling the weight of our sin beginning to hit him when he's crushed and crumbling there. And he says, Father, is there any other way? Let this cup pass before me. Cup is judgment. In fact, speaking of judgment, bronze was, was what the altar was made of. The judgment of God was appeased there. The righteousness of God was met when, when the blood of an innocent sacrifice would cover the top of the altar. That, that image of a snake, the cursed one whose blood would be shed so that the, the righteousness of God could, could still be upheld, so that the judgment of God could be appeased, so that the justice of God could be served. And all the while, the love of God could be displayed. This was not a moment where God pushed pause on any of those attributes. They all came together in this crazy moment of an incarnation in a cross. Christ became accursed 
so that we could be the recipients of God's mercy and grace, so that we could become, if he became a curse, so that we could become the blessed and favored of God. And that did not happen because we earned it, nor because we deserved it. It happened because of his agape love. Jesus reveals that character to us. He's the visible expression of invisible God. More than just being good, God is revealed and described as love. That's what scripture says about him. In 1 John chapter 4, it, it makes the comment that God is love. No other religion or religious book reveals God as loving. None do. Of all the major religions in the world, only one affirms that there's this personal loving God who can be known now in this life. Jesus spoke of a God who welcomes us into a relationship with him and then comes alongside of us to comfort us, to counsel us. He's a powerful God who loves us and stands by us. Scripture tells us he is agape. The expression of his nature is to love. The expression of that love, it's not contingent upon our being lovely or lovable. Agape love is is so captivated and beautiful because it's the self-emptying love that does not need or seek anything in return. In our world, we're used to seeing the terrible, powerful motivators of fear and shame. But the motivation for a follower of Jesus is not fear or shame, it's love. It's that we're loved without measure or requirement. It's the agape love of God expressed for us and demonstrated and proven for us in Jesus. A love that we are promised we will enjoy forever together with him. You see, the gift of Jesus, Christmas, the first advent, was God's expression of the love, the agape of God for this world. The cross of Jesus is the once and for all proof, the demonstration of that great agape love for us. Yeah, we live in a world that's broken and longing for this kind of love, but we remember that that love arrived in Jesus. We remember today that that love is found in Jesus. We remember today that we can look away from all these other passions and pursuits that are empty, to look towards the one who is so beautiful. We remember today and we await today with tension and waiting for the future expression of that love that we have forever with him in a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth. Christmas is the celebration of God with us and God overcoming for us. That's what we celebrate. Emmanuel, God with us, but at Christmas we celebrate God overcoming for us. So, Father, thank you that this is what we pause to remember, that we can find our hope, Jesus, in you, that we can find our peace, Jesus, in you, that we can find our joy, Jesus, in you, and that we find the love that we so desperately need. Jesus, we find it in you. So we look away, from everything else today to look your direction. And Jesus, we thank you. Our world needs this. Jesus, we need this, even as your people. We need to slow down in moments and remember, Jesus, you are what I need. And Jesus, you are welcome here. Jesus, I need you. That's true of each of us.
Emmanuel be God with us. May your love be seen and experienced this week by each of us as we reflect on Christmas. May Christmas remind us also, though, of where you demonstrated that love across. May it remind us of an empty tomb where you promised to us a future alive with you. Jesus, thank you for what you've given us. You've given us so very much in giving yourself. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.